All right, we're talking about, we've been uh, in the middle of a series called This I Believe. And This I Believe is, um, has been a lot of fun. We've talked about communion, we've talked about baptism, we've talked about end times, we've talked about the Holy Spirit, we've talked about uh, what we believe about the Bible, all kinds of very interesting uh, topics. And so today we're going to talk about one that's very, um, it's close to my heart, and it's a very interesting topic. Um, and I've kind of struggled with it. And actually, the idea for this message, or the why we should talk about it, came uh, after I watched Wonder Woman. And um, if you've not seen Wonder Woman, it is a fantastic film. And uh, Relevant Magazine came out with an article talking about how the character of Wonder Woman in that movie is uh, a great example of what a uh, what the Bible says a woman should be like. Um, that's that's like. Proverbs 31 woman is Wonder Woman lived out. And I, I, I love that. I thought that was funny and interesting. Um, but as I thought about it, I was like, yeah. Um, she's got this uh, wonderful uh, naiveness, but wisdom. This, na- this wonderful strength, uh, but softness. This wonderful um, courage against anything, but needing help. And it's this, just this balance going back and forth. It's not your typical... Um, it's just not any of your, your thought processes of what, um, I don't know, it just blew me away to think about it and, and this balance going back and forth. And I thought about it, and I thought about a lot when I was watching the movie about my daughter and um, watching such a strong heroine throughout a movie, you realize, man, I haven't seen that many of those. Um, and I thought, wow. And I was like, okay, Kendall can just watch this movie on repeat. This is fine with me. Um, just so, so, and she hasn't seen it yet, but she may not even like it. But the idea of, wow, um, what happens when we start teaching our daughters they can be strong like this? And so I started thinking about that and praying through that a little bit more. And I thought, we never talk about women in ministry. We know, you know, we, I assume we're all cool with it. <laughs> Um, because of how I've grown up, but then I, I've worked in other uh, church settings um, that women in ministry was not a thing. Women, no women elders, no women pastors, no women in leadership. And so we all come from different kinds of backgrounds here. And so I wanted to take a morning and really delve into this idea of women in ministry. What is it about? How is it biblical? Is it not biblical? Where do we come? Where do we get it? And specifically, where does the Church of God of Anderson? come from on that? Because I think it's, it's kind of important. We assume some things about women in ministry, sometimes in our culture. Um, and but if you look at the history of Church of God of Anderson, it's a little different. Uh, it's a lot different than other churches who have women in leadership. And so we're going to dive into that. And you, now you may be asking the question, why do I care about this? I will tell you. The Bible cares a whole bunch about women in leadership. The Bible cares a bunch about it. And number two, our culture cares about women in leadership. Our culture cares. And this is one area, I think, in which the, the church, um, specific denominations, I'm going to speak a little bit more to the arguments of um, Protestant theology about women in, in leadership, not necessarily Catholic um, pushback on women in, in leadership, because I don't uh, fully have a good grasp of, of the Catholic, the Catholic um, viewpoint on it. So um, I know usually like with communion and baptism, I, I dove really deep into 
uh, Catholicism and how we're different than that. Today, we're not going to necessarily do, uh, do that. We're going to go more into um, maybe how more of a, a Baptist view uh, juxtaposed against ours um, is. All right. So Church of God of Anderson, to go ahead and uh, bury the lead here, we're pro-women in ministry. We ordain women, uh, women pastors. Uh, we have half of our elder board is women. There's no rule in our bylaws that a certain percentage of women have to be elders. It just happened that half of them are. Okay. I didn't even think about it. I just, we, we think about who we're going to, as an elder, who are we going to put forward to be women, or not to be women, to be leaders in our church, to be elders in our church, and women's names keep on coming up. So um, that's, that is it, and it wasn't a thing. It's not like, oh, no, we have to have so many percentage women or so many percentage this, this, this. It's, it was that. Um, we have one of our elders. I asked her to be an elder. I said, the board's talked about it. We thought your name would uh, be great uh, to put forth in front of the church to be an elder. First thing out of her mouth was, my mom's going to be so proud. Um, and I just, I love that. Um, but also, then she's also had some pushback from other people. She meant like, she can't be an elder. She's a woman. She's a she. Um, and I'm like, okay. So this is, there's some thoughts and some ideas and some, um, and people think differently than, than we do here. So we're going to kind of dive into that. But I want you, this whole this I believe is all about knowing why you believe what you believe. If you disagree with me, we can have a conversation. You can feel free to disagree with me. I hope through all the other things that we've talked about that we can easily uh, disagree about, end time stuff, communion, baptism. Uh, we've done that extremely respectfully. I hope this one can be respectful as well. The cool thing about, um, I want to get to this story first. So I was at a, uh, a convention with the staff of, of the last church I worked at. And so all the staff is there, and I'm, I'm bunked up with a guy named Keith Norman, who's now went and church, planted a church. And uh, I love Keith. Um, Keith preaches exact opposite of me. He is a, um, he, he went to school here in Chicago, started doing ministry the inter- on the south side of Chicago, right around uh, Comiskey Park or whatever they call it now. Um, but they, uh, he started doing ministry there. He's got uh, locks down to here. Um, he is uh, definitely a lot darker skinned than I am. Uh, so he, he preaches totally different. He sings after every message, you know, just like me. Uh, he sings, he sings after every message. He, he preaches for like three hours. Like he's like, oh, last point. And you know, he's just getting started. Um, but we're on the staff at the same church, share the same pulpit sometimes, which was really cool. Uh, and then he comes like, what do you think about this, Jared? And he'd ask me these really good questions. I'll still get texts. I'll get texts at four o'clock in the morning because he's up praying because he's way holier than I am. And uh, so, and he'll text me, what do you think about this verse? I don't think anything at four o'clock, bud. You go away. Um, so he looks at the, he's looking at the uh, program for the next morning and he, and he goes, huh, so what's the matter? He looks at me, he goes, I'm just, I don't know. What? He said, there's a woman preaching tomorrow. Me, my mom's ordained. You know, if you go, don't know me that well, my mom's ordained, been ordained for half my life. Um, she, her job is to train other people how to be better children's pastors. That's her, her deal. Um, and she's really good at it. But that's what, that's what she does. Um, and so I'm like, okay. And he goes, I don't know how I feel about that. Like I always thought a woman couldn't, couldn't preach, couldn't be a leader, couldn't be an elder, couldn't do these things. And now she's, there's a woman going to preach to all these other pastors and training us tomorrow? Like, uh-huh. And so there comes a really awkward moment there. What am I going to say to this? Am I just going to let it go? Because I'm, I'm sharing a room with the guy, right? So what are we going to do here? What's it going to look like? How, how do we deal with that? And so I said, well, I mean, I grew up 
having women in leadership? He's like, you did? Yeah. And so out of that came this three-hour conversation of just kind of exploring the Scripture together and exploring um, just our past. Because I didn't understand his point of view. He didn't understand mine. Where are we going to get together? Well, we always had respect for each other, humility, and love for each other. And he's still one of my best, best, best friends. And so we have this long conversation, and I kind of want to take you through that conversation today to maybe help you understand what's going on uh, for you uh, this morning and, and maybe in your life, and just some clarity in what's going on. Women in ministry is a hugely, hugely, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge topic that we deal with in, in our church. It's a huge topic that the Bible deals with as well, because it seems to be really, really important to um, the early church, it's, it, it seems to be important to just the whole biblical narrative of women in leadership. But it matters a lot to our culture. And it matters in our culture because the, our, our culture is seen as being uh, chauvinist, as being you know, very male-driven as a Christian culture, sorry. And we look at the outside, it's like, well, man, they don't, they don't care about women. They don't let women be leaders. They don't all this stuff. And these are ideas that are very damaging to, I think, modern Christianity, and they don't have to be. There's some things that I'm going to believe that don't make me popular with culture. Uh, believing that women shouldn't be in ministry makes me unpopular with culture, and it doesn't have to be. <laughs> um, does that make sense? I don't, I don't have to. This is not a, some, a sword I have to die on. This is not something I have to be like, no, this is true. There's plenty of those other ones that will make me unpopular. Uh, but women in ministry is not one of them. And we're going to explore that uh, deeper today. Jesus himself is so pro-women. It's amazing. Out of all the historical characters that you could pick from, all the philosophers, all the religious leaders, Jesus is probably is the most pro-woman out of all of them. It's amazing from a single guy. He can speak directly to a woman's heart, make her feel valued and loved and cared for and built up in a matter of seconds. And this is what he does all throughout the Gospels. You read Jesus' interactions. He has interaction after interaction after interaction after interaction with women. And afterwards, he's got women, uh, because of the way in which he's treated them and built them up, he's got women that are bankrolling his ministry. Um, if you look, some of the, those, those women that are kind of following him around, um, they're actually rich, and they're the ones that are providing the money, money for this whole thing to go on. Uh, he's finding women caught in adultery and saving face for them and saying, you know what, we're going to, don't do that anymore. He's never like, oh, just keep on saying, it's cool. But he, he, he speaks right to their situation, and he, and he protects them. He builds them up, and he guards them. It's beautiful. The other religious leaders would never do this. Jesus gets yelled at by, all, by his disciples. What are you doing talking to a woman? You crazy? It's, it's a woman. They don't bite. Okay, it's, we can talk to this. In a time period in which women are treated basically as property, Jesus is building them up, showing them they're valuable, cared for. And this is beautiful. Um, this aspect of Jesus, it makes me want to know more about Joseph. It always does. This is like my Christmas message about Joseph. I want to know how much class Joseph had in treating Mary. Like, what kind of guy was he? Because you learn that behavior. You learn how you treat women from watching your dad or the men in your life. How much, what was Joseph like? 
So maybe he was a jerk. I don't know, but I tend to think that he was a class act with the way he he was a carpenter. So everyone, everybody's mama is coming. Joseph, can you come fix this? You know, what, what did that look like? Can you? My, my some pumps broke. You know, whatever. I don't, there's not some pumps in Israel. There's no water. It doesn't matter. Uh, but you, you, get, you get the idea. Like, how did Joseph act in that? And I, I, I tend to think that he, just by the way in which he treats Mary, he could have had her killed. And he treats her with class that he's always treating women with dignity and class. And I just love that part. Uh, scripturally, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all are one in Christ. Now this passage is used to really talk about everyone. Everyone is created new in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter. All that doesn't matter. And this verse spoke directly to the heart of the Church of God movement in the 1880s when it was founded. The Church of God movement in the 1880s is founded. Think about America in the Midwest in 1880s. We just fought the Civil War. Racism abounds everywhere. Women's job opportunities are what? Be a school teacher, a seamstress, or a homemaker. Like that's that's about the gamut of what you could do in life in the 1880s. And what does the Church of God do? About 44% of the Church of God uh, pastors that start out in the 1880s to about 1915 are African American or women. It's like almost half of the pastor, the pastor to the whole movement is either African-American or women, and sometimes both, so you get the double count. But, but, but you've got this, this crazy, awesome idea of Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, or there's neither black nor white. There's no slave nor free. There's no male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. You see how that, that, that's where we get it from. That's where women in ministry start coming from, is we're living out that verse from the very beginning. Now, in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s, lots of other denominations started letting women be uh, in leadership and pastors and elders and deacons. And that came out of, as a rebuttal from the cultural shift to feminism. We didn't do that. We were like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just reading the scripture. I love being in that spot. I don't, I'm, culture's not shaping me and going, oh, well, now we got to let women be, be pastors. That's not where that came from. It came from reading the scripture. There's neither slave nor free or male or female, it comes from the Scripture. That, that is a much safer place to be. I don't want to be moving my theology because of what culture told me. There's a word in the Scripture that a lot of this centers around, and it's the word um, deacon. It's translated in the Scripture several different times as deacon or deaconess. And deaconess is the feminine form of deacon. And it really has to do with who it's referring to. There's women in the Bible referred to as deacons. There is um, times where deacon is just said in a sentence by itself, and it's in a feminine form, and you're like, why is that? Um, but traditionally, because it's all been all guys translating the Scripture, they've always just put it in the male form of deacon, which causes a little bit of a problem. Now, did I just say the Bible is fallible? It's got all kinds of problems. No, I did not say that. I said the translator's got problems. But we've always had the Greek text. We've always gone back, and you can read it, and it's like deaconai or deaconai s, and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a, 
It's a feminine form. Like, you don't even know, have to be able to speak Greek, and you can figure out the words different, and one's feminine, one's, one's masculine. If you know anything about um, like foreign languages that do feminine and masculine, actually, you couldn't do that because it's in a different alphabet, but never mind. Uh, but you would have to know a little bit uh, to be able to do that. Um, but you can figure out the, uh, the feminine and the masculine, and that causes a problem, I think, for all of us. Because if we're going to say it's a deaconess, now she's got leadership, now I've got to make some tough choices. And I've got to start thinking about it. There's one verse in 1 Timothy 2, um, verse 12, that says, Women should submit and be, uh, and be silent in church, and I do not permit them to, to teach. We'll t- read the actual verse later. Well, he's going to put it up there. But um, we're going to talk about that. That's the verse. That's the one verse that everybody comes back to that's anti-women in ministry. Paul said it. It's in 1 Timothy. There it is. The problem with that mentality, the problem with looking at that one verse and having that... Uh, skew all the rest of your theology is, yeah, that one verse is in there, but I got the whole rest of the thing talking about women being leaders. And so we're going to talk about not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six women today that are all leaders in the Bible. And so, and some of them Paul's talking about. Some of them Paul says, that, that lady's a deacon. Well, if he says you can't teach, what well, kind of, that's part of the job title. So we got a problem here. We got we to talk about that. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the, pro- in the, in the program, in the, little, in the talk today. Um, but as we, as we kind of discuss that, we, it all wraps around this word of deacon and deaconess. And what's a deacon and deaconess? Someone who's serving the church. Our elders at the church really operate more as deacons. We give them titles. Um, all kinds of churches, have, they, they struggle with this church governance and how they're going to call people uh, anymore. Because elders is really kind of my title, um, just and if you read the scripture of what delineates an elder, what, what they do, um, that's kind of my 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 shtick. And the deacon and the elders are more like deacons, but it's really kind of titles, and we're just playing with words. Uh, Pastor Eric's more kind of an overseer or presbyter, uh, kind of overseeing a bunch of different churches, and that's how that all works. Um, but it's it's these biblical um, offices in a modern, especially Western American uh, culture kind of get very weird. Because think about it, they've showed you how to set up an ch- effective church planning organization of, of small groups. <laughs> that's, that's what their offices are for. We don't operate that way anymore. So uh, it gets a little weird and a little convoluted in how we, how we dole all that stuff out. But that's what's going on. One of the things that really strikes my fancy, really makes me go, hmm, about women in ministry is the church fathers are all for pro women in ministry. None of them are going, ah, no, you can't have any women in ministry. If there's a church father, if you are confused of what a church father is, it's basically, there's about six or eight extremely uh, proficient, influential uh, bishops and pastors uh, from about the second century to the fourth century AD. And they write all kinds of stuff. And it's out of their pens that kind of figures out um, there's the Bible and Acts and, and, and Paul's epistles. And then these church fathers kind of figure out how that's going to work. And that sets up uh, Eastern Orthodox Church and the, Roman, uh, the, the baby uh, Roman church and how that's actually going to work. Okay, so these guys are really, 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 really important. If you came from a Greek Orthodox church, you'd know the guys I'm going to talk about. If you came from a Catholic church, you might have heard some of these guys um, and who I'm talking about. But the oldest references to women as deacons, of course, uh, occur in Paul's letters, which is 80, 55, and 58. Their ministry is mentioned by early Christian writers such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen. 
And if anybody's going to be cranky about anything about women, it's going to be Uriagin. If you study him at all, he's kind of, kind of out there, um, especially when it has to deal with women. But he's still going, yep, they can be deacons. Uh, secular evidence from early 2nd century confirms this. In a letter to Pliny the Younger, attests the role of women deacons. Pliny, this is a Roman writing to another Roman, uh, and we get all kinds of information about early martyrdom of uh, Christians through these correspondence that Pliny has. Pliny refers to two maidservants as deacons whom he tortures to find out more about the Christians. It's a great way to figure out that they're deacons. Um, this establishes the existence of the office as deaconess in parts of the Eastern Roman Empire from the earliest times. Fourth century uh, fathers of the church, such as Epiphanius, uh, Epiphanius of Salamis, Basil of Caesarea, John Chrysostom, and Gregory of Nyssa, accept the ministry of women ordained as deacons as fact. Now, that may mean a lot to you. That may mean nothing to you. What it means is, very early on, the most influential, important, rock star Christians of the day are saying we, women are deacons. That's what you can take from that. So, back to these six women. When you take that one verse in 1 Timothy and apply it to all women of all time ever that they shouldn't, uh, shouldn't teach in church and they should submit and be silent and all this stuff, you do a gross injustice to the rest of the scripture. And very simply, the three most important men in all the Bible are only possible because of three of the most amazing women leaders in the Bible. Moses. If you read Moses' story, he is only alive because his sister had the courage to pull a fast one on the Egyptian nobility. Right? She's like, oh, you know what we can do? I don't care about Nile crocodiles. I don't care about getting eaten. I don't care about get, getting killed. I'm going to save my baby brother, and we're going to put him in a basket and whoop, down the river. Right? What? That is amazing. That is the love. That's only a woman can th- start thinking of this stuff when she sees a baby. Right? A guy's like, oh, let's uh, dig a hole. All right? This is a guy's thing. A woman's like, oh, let's get creative. I could have this basket. We can do all this. We can figure it out. That is amazing. Number two. David, most influential, most amazing king that Israel ever has. He is only possible because his grandmama is one of the most pugnacious, hardworking, uh, inventive foreigners that uh, come into Israel. There's a whole book of the Bible about her. It's the story of Ruth and Naomi, right? And because of her, her uh, intensity and because of her longing to belong and her obedience... She gets into the, the, the line of Boaz's wife and uh, David's, uh, becomes David's grandma. And that is amazing to think about. And then also, we've already kind of alluded to it, but Mary. Think about Mary, Jesus' mama. She is an unwed teenage mother in a time in which it's perfectly too acceptable to stone to death an unwed teenager mother. Right? Think about that. And she does it with class and dignity. She stands up for herself. She does what needs to be done. She accepts this crazy sentence that God has said, hey, I'm going to get you pregnant. Hey, and you're going to be uh, probably 16 years old. Hey, good luck with the social outcast of that. And she handles it like a champ. And that's Jesus' mama. Think about that. Those are women leaders that directly affect who their, their sons or grandsons are going to become, and they're going to change the face 
of Israel in the face of the world. Now, there's more women, and these, these are the, the rock star women that blow me away. There's a woman in Judges, Judges chapter 4. Her name is Deborah. Now, Deborah is, you can, Judges is not read that often um, because it's kind of weird. It gets kind of weird at the end, like really weird, like they chop somebody up and send them to all these different states, and it gets kind of weird at the end. Um, if you are a teenage boy and you want to read something in the Bible, Judges. It'll keep your attention, all right? Uh, that's, that's what goes on. Uh, we did it in men's group because that was the only way I could keep their attention. Uh, so, uh, but Deborah is amazing. So let's read this, J- uh, Judges chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. Now think about this. This is like uh, 600 B.C., and her name is being mentioned first. When you get a letter at the house today, when Kelly gets a letter at the house, it says Mr. and Mrs. or Reverend and Mrs. Jared Hauser. That's today, in 2017. Not Deborah's mail. It says Deborah and Mr. Labradoth. That's amazing to me. Deborah, prophet, a wife of Labradoth, was leading, 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 underline, leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. She's so important, she got a tree named after her. Now, if you read Judges, you understand that actually is really important. There's only like five trees in Israel anyway. So like if you get one named after you, woo, you're important. Um, the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She went to Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go with you and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River. Caesarea is the bad guy. Um, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Certainly I'll go with you, Deborah said. But because uh, the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. The Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So let's recap Deborah. She's married. She's a judge. People come to her to settle their arguments. That's amazing. She appoints a general. So she has enough power to say, hey, uh, you're the guy. And he is so scared. He's like, well, but, you're the, but, but, but you, can you hold my hand? <laughs> so he says, you got to go with me. And then I love this line. You're going to uh, deliver... God's going to deliver uh, Caesarea to the hands of a woman. Now, you think it's going to be Deborah. You think Deborah's going to go in there and chariot and be like, wah! It's not what happens. Well, ha- I've got to tell this part because it's just cool. But what happens later in the chapter is uh, the Israelites smash the army, and the general, Caesarea, starts running away. And uh, he, he's, he's running and running and running, sees a tent, like, slides into the tent. He's like, you've got to hide me. She's like, and the woman of the tent says, sure, I'll hide you. Gives him some goat's milk to drink. He drinks some goat's milk, passes out, and while he's sleeping, she takes a tent peg, puts it on his temple, and goes, <gasps> pins him to the floor. Says, hey guys, I got something over here to show you. Get him. She is the wife of a special ops guy who's been doing all this cool stuff uh, all throughout the story. That's Judges. So now all the, all the, all the guys are like, I gotta read this book. Uh, but that's what happens. Um, that's in the, you're like, that's in the Bible? Jesus loves me, this I know. Uh, so. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's what happens there. 
Second woman I want to talk about, and then we're going to fast forward into uh, Acts. It's a woman named Phoebe. Not the girl from Friends, but Phoebe. Um, she is writing, and this is where kind of the whole 1 Timothy 2.12 um, gets a little weird, because uh, Paul is a huge fan of Phoebe. In, in Romans 16.1, it writes, I commend to our sister Phoebe a servant of the church in Censoria. Censoria. If you can bring that verse up, 16.1. If you look up in your um, NIV version, if it was written over about uh, 10, 15 years ago, it'll say this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in, in Centuria. You're like, oh, okay, she's a, she's a servant. Cool. If you look it up on uh, version today, you look it up on Bible Gateway today, or you have bought an NIV in the last probably year or so, it's going to say, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria. There's been a huge debate over the translation of this one word in this one verse. In fact, there's some pretty important evangelical people who threw a hissy fit when they wanted to translate it to deacon because that undermines the way in which we see women in the ministry, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's deacon. You can't take it out of the Greek. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria. Who writes Romans? A guy named Paul. Who wrote 1 Timothy 2? Verse 12. A guy named Paul. It's the same guy. So what is going on here? Phoebe is this amazing servant, this amazing deacon that's, that's building the church in Centuria. So how can the same guy write and say, she's an awesome deacon. I don't permit women to be deacon. You see what the problem is. You see how that's confusing. You see how we got an issue. Well, it's a con- contextual issue. If you know what's going on in, in 1 Timothy, you start to understand why Paul would write this. In the church, in the setting that First Timothy is set in, um, Paul is writing Timothy and, and telling him basically, hey, this is how you got to lead. This is how you have to, to set standards in that church. This is how you have to set that church up for success. Well, that, in that area, in that church, the way that you went and you served the idols, you served the false gods of that area, was the women led the church service. And what would happen in that church service is, women would get up and basically start this cyclone of emotion running around the temple or wherever they were at and just yelling and screaming and and just going around and running. And it's this whirlpool of emotion, just this kind of frenzy getting built up. It's this frenzy getting just... And you can imagine like what's going on. And so Paul writes, I don't... don't, no women can do this kind of thing. No cyclones of emotion, no crazy stuff going on. Shh, be quiet. Because it's a direct juxtaposition about what's going on in the community of that spot. I don't, we don't, because as soon as one woman starts to do this whole thing, like, I came to church. This is how we've always, I came to a religious thing. This is how we've always served to God. I got to, first five minutes, I get up and start running around like, uh, and going around. Right? You see how this is a problem? Because now, in your mind, if you came from that idolatry, which might have uh, turned into some uh, ritualized sex acts and some other things like that, in your mind, you come to church, you're like, whoa, I don't want to flick those switches. We're trying to get people, pull them out of this paganism. And now, if we allow women to do this kind of thing, we're pulling them right back into it. It's a very contextualized problem, as seen by the way in which um, all these other women in the Bible, does he mean like, oh, well, Deborah couldn't have been a, a, a leader? No, he, Paul would have never said that. This Phoebe that I'm a huge fan of, this deacon Phoebe, 
No, he's talking about this church this one time. You can't do this because it causes all kinds of issues. Does this make sense? And this is where a lot of the, um, the arguments hinge. And uh, there's some other arguments uh, for and against uh, women in ministry, but it's really on, on the second, uh, first Timothy verse, which causes a problem when the same author is saying, hey, this woman's a deacon. And then finally, there's this really neat woman. Her name's Priscilla, and she gets the Deborah treatment. Whenever you read Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 18, Priscilla... His name is mentioned before her husband, Aquila. Now, I could go on. There's a woman named Lydia who uh, is incredibly important. But Priscilla is very interesting because she is directly responsible for mentoring one of the most influential Christians uh, in the baby church. She is directly responsible for basically bringing up a guy named Apollos into the faith. Apollos is very knowledgeable. He's kind of like Paul in some ways. He knows all about Judaism. He knows about Jesus, but he's never heard of the Holy Spirit. And Priscilla sits him down and says, listen, 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 you're you're, you're doing good things, but I got to teach you about how the Holy Spirit works. And it's Priscilla's job. She's teaching these deep things to Apollos. Now, Lots of scholars debate on this idea. There's a book in the the New Testament called Hebrews. It's one of the most theological deep books in uh, the New Testament. It's it's the deep end. Like you don't don't tell someone who just got, you know, encountered Jesus yesterday and be like, oh, go read Hebrews. What is happening? There's a lot going on in Hebrews. And so the thought is that either um, Apollos wrote Hebrews, which means that he's writing down all these things that he learned from Priscilla, that she's directly affecting one of the books of the Bible, or there are some uh, theologians out there who think Priscilla actually wrote Hebrews. Now, how would that mess with your brain? I don't permit a woman to teach, but she wrote one of the most influential books in the New Testament. Now, I don't know if that's fact, I don't know if that's true, but there's a lot of theologians who would back me up on, on that as well. But think, anyway, she had a lot of influence on this book being written. This is a woman named Priscilla. And I just find that amazing. As a, as a guy who is directly shaped uh, definitively by a woman in ministry. I've, my mom's come back from some of these training events and said, well, that was odd. And I was like, what's the matter? She's like, well, I was, I was teaching on Sunday morning at a church, and I couldn't stand behind the pulpit. So the, the pastor stood behind the pulpit, and I was sitting there preaching, reading the Word of God, doing everything else, but I couldn't be behind the pulpit. He had to actually stand there during the service. That had been kind of awkward. But the idea was, well, he's, he's the gate in which all, he's approving all these things being said. And I said, what? Because if you read the New Testament, you see all these amazing women teaching the Word of God, living it out, being servants, being deacons, being in leadership, changing the world, winning battles. I go, why are we fighting that battle? Because <laughs> I want to look at my daughter my daughter, who, when I say, you can be anything you want. You work hard in school. You can do whatever, you know, typical American dream stuff. But you can do anything you want except in the church where I keep on telling you Jesus loves you, but he's going to put a cap on your potential. And you read the scripture? He's never doing that. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, you're Greek, you're black, you're white, you're purple, you're, you're orange. It doesn't matter if you, who you are. You are all created in Christ Jesus. As men, 
I think we need to encourage our daughters and our wives and our aunts and our grandmas. Or, and we just need to thank them for the, the spiritual and religious influence they've had in our lives. But also say, no, you can do that. You can have the courage to do these things. Because where would we be if we looked around and we said, well, and I don't understand the idea of women can be Sunday school teachers. We'll allow them to teach our children, but we won't allow them to do anything else. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. As you well know, if you've, if you've been in the church more than 10 minutes, you know that the children's ministry is like, to me, I'd rather that go on on Sunday morning than me talking. I, I, I love what we do in, our, in, our, in the basement and in the back. But as we think about that, are we putting a cap? Do we do it subconsciously? Probably. But we've got to be consciously thinking about Galatians. There's neither Jew, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So I want to take you back to that conversation with Keith. The next morning, we're sitting there, we get basically front row seats to uh, listen to this woman preach. Her name's Priscilla Schreier. And uh, if you know who Priscilla Schreier is, you're going, oh, okay. Uh, we were not scraping the bottom of the barrel of, of speakers this morning. And Priscilla starts to preach. <clears throat> and about 20 minutes into her sermon, Keith is sitting next to me. He looks at me and he goes, he got tears in his eyes. He said, I think you're right. Because if you ever heard Priscilla Schreier speak, you know she's probably one of the most gifted communicators in Christendom. I'm not saying she's, she is the best female communicator. I don't need to give her that moniker. She's that good. She's like, she'll go toe-to-toe with, with anybody you've ever heard preach. She is amazing. Amazing in her exegesis, amazing in her passion, amazing in her points, amazing in her object lesson, amazing in everything. And you're just like, <gasps> the whole time she's preaching. The idea of, I was going to have, and my, my friend Keith was going to have a closed mind and not pay attention to anything she's saying because well, she can't be up there teaching right now. And miss out on all the goody stuff that the Holy Spirit was doing inside of her. Because of some presuppositions that don't have to be there. I hope that can happen in our minds. That we can look at the things, and that's what this whole series has been about. Is look at the things maybe we've held in our brains and gone, do I really believe that? And do I have to believe that? And is that really important? And is that scriptural? Is that biblical? Because a lot of the times, the stuff that we're, we think we have to hold on to, that Jesus is not even concerned with it. So I know today's message has been a little different. It's been, been trying not to make it lecturally or professorial. Ooh, fun word. But it's this important, important, important idea that we speak life and we speak love into everybody in our church. And it doesn't matter our skin color and it doesn't matter the language you speak and it doesn't matter um, the, the sex we happen to be born with, that God wants to use all of us to betterment the kingdom of God. That he has a plan and a purpose for everybody. No matter what you've gone through in life, no matter if you had it easy or if you've had it hard, no matter how many ups and downs your life has got, God still has a plan for your life. He still loves you and there's no cap on that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for who you are. Thank you for working through people. Whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're male, whether they're female, whether they're pretty, if they're ugly. It never matters to the Holy Spirit, to the kingdom of God, that you use all of us in all of our different ways. 
And God, if we need to repent from having closed-mindedness and hard hearts right now, God, I just I pray for repentance. God, if I've been judging people, they can't be effective. Lord, I ask you to convict me. Just put that on my heart so that I would repent from that. Lord, this morning, I'm going to walk away from here valuing everyone. Valuing what they bring to the table. Valuing how much they can teach me. Valuing the passion. Valuing the wisdom. I don't want to miss out on any of it, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you all the days of your life. You are dismissed.